U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by my exo, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. So, we're going to finish up our broad overview of the War of 1812, and then we're going to start on a battle or two for this episode. We'll, uh, we'll see how long it takes. So, you ready to get underway? Let's cast away. So, the start of 1815 was supposed to have a offensive into Georgia by the Royal Marine Battalions advancing westward. And they were supposed to be joined by Nichols and his forces from the Gulf Coast. The plans were stopped because of events such as the Declaration of Peace. Dad gum negotiators ruined all our fun plans for conquering the South. So, because of peace, the offensive was canceled. Nichols and his men returned to Prospect Bluff. And then the Prospect Bluff was handed over to Somalis. Now, in April, the locally recruited companies of the Corps of Colonial Marines, that was completely disbanded. Well, I was going to say, so after they were disbanded, did they stay in... I don't recall what island it was they were stationed on, but a Caribbean island? Yes. Okay. So it wasn't that they were disbanded and then sent back to the U.S. in chains. They were just no longer working for the military. Oh, they're they're British citizens now. Awesome. Yeah. They gave up their citizenship of America, which wasn't much anyway since America didn't consider them citizens. They considered them property. Way to go, UK. So most of the Royal Marines garrisoned at Appalachia were put on board the HMS Sidness on the 22nd of April, and Edward Nichols embarked on the brig HMS Forward on July 29th, and they all went back to England. So in May, a British ally of the Sock, unaware that the war had ended, you know, months before, they attacked uh, some U.S. soldiers moving northwest of St. Louis. Okay. There, there was, you know, intermittent fighting, usually with just the sock, which continued into the Missouri Territory for another two years. But we don't know if they were acting on their own or on behalf of the British still. Bunch of isolated warships continued to fight well into 1815 and were, of course, you know, the last American forces to attack the British. Hmm. So were those privateers most likely hired by the uh, government who were more interested in the profit? Well, the reason why they continued the offensive was because they didn't know it was over. Oh, right. Even to 1815? Uh, never mind. We could scratch all this. I'm, I'm hearing it as I'm saying it. <laughs> That's why it's going to stay in. Yep. Yep. I, oh, no. Oh, no. What have I done? What have I done? <laughs> so, you know, by 1814, both sides had achieved their war goals, the main ones, and were getting very tired of a costly war that was pretty much just a stalemate. They both sent delegations to Ghent, in Belgium. Uh, negotiations 
they started in August and then ended in on Christmas Day in December. Then the final agreement was signed, but both sides had to ratify it before, you know, before it could be put into effect. So while they were waiting for the ratification, because the leaders on both sides aren't there, so they has to travel there, they travel back, and so they were both still planning offensives and invasions. <laughs> so the British began blockading the ports in New England, which, now that they were blocking these northeastern ports, the American trade was almost non-existent. But it also hurt the British when they did this, because they also couldn't trade in the West Indies and Canada, because all that trade was dependent on the northeast of the United States. And because the British did this, New England was like, mm, maybe we should uh, succeed from the Union. So the British stopped blockading us. Oh. So by this time, American privateers found capturing other ships much more difficult because the British decided, you know what, we're going to start doing convoys again. But they, they still harassed the British enough to be troublesome because of, we know this because of high insurance rates during that time. So the British landowners, they got very tired of all these high taxes. And so the colonial interests and merchants were called by the government to reopen trade with the U.S., by the end of the war. And as peace talks opened, the British demanded the creation of an Indian barrier state in the American Northwest Territory, which is from Ohio to Wisconsin. They also demanded that the Americans not have any naval forces on the Great Lakes. But of course, you know, U.S. rejected all of these demands. I, I was going to say, as someone who lives in Wisconsin, I could personally attest that has not worked out. Yeah, no. The uh, demands were rejected, and that's, you know, talk stalled. And then, you know, the American public was angered when Madison published the demands of the British. Now even the Federalists, the ones who were against the war in the first place, wanted to continue the fight. Oh, it hurts itself in its confusion. <laughs> <laughs> The, the British had planned three invasions. One was the one that burned Washington and failed to capture Baltimore. The second one was a northern New York state where, you know, 10,000 British marched south until defeated at the Battle of Plattsburgh. But then nothing was known of the third large invasion force, which was pointed towards New Orleans and the Southwest. The Prime Minister wanted the Duke of Wellington to command in Canada and then just finally win the war. And Wellington said he would go, but he believed he was needed in Europe. Yeah, I'm, I just looked up when the Battle of Waterloo was. He, he had pressing engagements. Yeah, he says, here's a quote from him. I think you have no right from the state of war to demand any concession of territory from America. You have not been able to carry it into the enemy's territory, notwithstanding your military success and now undoubted military superiority, and have not even cleared your own territory to the point of attack. 
You cannot, in any principle of equality in negotiation, claim a succession of territory except in exchange for other advantages which you have in your power. Then, if this reasoning be true, why stipulate for the Uri Posidists? You can get no territory. Indeed, the state of your military operations, however credible, does not entitle you to demand any. So even the Duke of Wellington was like, Dude, stop. Just give it back and get out of there. <laughs> well, it's almost like waging a campaign thousands of miles across an ocean from your home territory is costly and hard to maintain. And is not getting anywhere. Yeah, yeah. This entire war was a big stalemate. Mm-hmm. So the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, you know, he started going, oh, people are opposing me to the taxation, the war, and demands. I don't want to end up like the last guy. And, you know, the merchants wanting to reopen trade. He realized Britain, you know, did not stand to gain much from a prolonged war. And, you know, he was going to lose a, a lot. So they dropped their demand for an independent Indian state, which was hopeless anyway after Tascoma was killed in the Battle of the Thames. And then the, this concession allowed negotiations to begin again at the end of October. And, I mean, the rest of the details were pretty much easy to resolve since the plan was to exchange, you know, all the territory that was captured and, you know, leave the lines exactly as they were before the war. So, on Christmas Day, December 1814, the diplomats had finished and signed the Treaty of Ghent. And then the treaty was ratified by the British three days later, actually. But it didn't arrive in Washington until the middle of February. But it was quickly ratified then. Which means that the war was finally over. We just had that one scuffle in New Orleans. In the interim. And, you know, in the northwest and out at sea and... Yeah, well, yeah, yeah there, there were more scuffles, but we talked about one. So as we know, you know, the terms called for all the occupied territory to be returned to the pre-war boundaries between Canada and the U.S. And the U.S. was actually to gain fishing rights in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Now, the treaty did not mention any of the reasons that led to this war, but the Americans were satisfied that their honor as an independent nation had been upheld. The issue with the Indians east of the Mississippi had been resolved. Impressment and ship seizures and blockades ended when Britain's war with France ended and then Mobile and parts of, you know, Western Florida were not mentioned, but they remained in American possession despite Spain's objections. So the total British losses from the end of the war were 1,600 killed in action, 3,679 wounded, 3,000 321 died from disease. Now, Americans, we lost 2,260 killed in action, 
4,505 wounded. And we have no idea how many died from disease. Well, like Oregon Trail said, that dysentery will get you. And it got lots of people. Probably a good 3,000 of those uh, 3,321 British. <laughs> oh, it, it, it hates everyone equally. So the total estimates of all casualties is about 15,000 that are directly related to the war. But they don't include deaths among the Canadian militia, Native Americans. Hence why American deaths at face value seem higher because we're including militia. Right. We're including the white people. Right. I was going to say Native American deaths are probably, you know, not hyperbole to say probably three times as bad because both sides viewed their allies as expendable resources. Yeah. Yeah. Native American losses were at least three times until Tecumseh was killed and the Native Americans were like, nope, we're done. So there's no real estimates of the cost of the American war to Britain. But it did add about $25 million to the national debt. In the U.S., it cost us about $105 million. So the national debt rose from 45 to $127 million by the end of 1815. So in three years, it rose from 45 to $127 million. 1815 money. 105 you said? $127 million. One, two, seven with a lot of zeros. Well, that wasn't the most expensive war. In 2022 money, that comes out to two billion three hundred thirty-nine million seven hundred thirty-five thousand eight hundred forty-four dollars and then 16 pennies. That's that the 16 pennies is what breaks it. I know, I know. And we're still, we're still working on it to this day. So about the cost of an aircraft carrier... About the cost of a B-2 spirit bomber in 1990s money. Th those things are not cheap. So, also, at least 3,000 American slaves escaped to the British because of their offer of freedom, which was the same they had made in the, during the American Revolution. And, of course, many slaves just escaped because of the chaos of war and achieved freedom on their own. The British settled... A lot of the newly freed slaves in Nova Scotia. About 400 were settled in New Brunswick. Now, the Americans protested Britain's failure to return all these slaves and said that it violated the Treaty of Ghent. But the Tsar of Russia arbitrated this disagreement, and Britain paid $1.2 in damages to Washington, which was used to reimburse the slave owners. Huh. Yeah, the Tsar of Russia. Did not see that one coming. Well, I mean, it's not uncommon having a foreign country to arbitrate peace talks. And that would be Alexander I. And if memory serves, he was a rather progressive one. Well, that is true. It's still Russia. You don't expect the Tsar of Russia to, to do that. Yeah, Russia was actually fairly progressive. Catherine through this guy. Th then it went full tilt. Yeah, so for about a five-year period. <laughs> but that ends our overview of the War of 1812. 
How are you feeling about that? A lot of dead folks. Nothing really changed. For 3,000 former slaves that got freed, that's awesome. Otherwise, I mean, this, this just seems like uh, resolving a lot of pent-up anger regarding 1776 through 1783. Yeah, there was a lot of pent-up anger that was squashed. But at the end of it, we had our bestest friends up until modern ages. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to have a bar fight that lasts about three years to, you know, work out the kinks in your relationship and then be best buddies for a couple centuries. Yeah. I'm sure best friends always fight every once in a while. So now that we have the overview out of the way, let's dive into some of these these naval battles. What do you say? I say let's bring it on. I I can't wait to hear how someone's confidence ultimately got lost. So we're going to start with the first battle of Sackett's Harbor. So it was fought on July 19th of 1812 between, you know, American and British naval forces. And the results of this was that the American forces repelled the attack on the town and the shipbuilding yard that was located there. Sackett's Harbor is in northern New York State on Lake Ontario. It was a huge shipbuilding yard for the United States during the war. It had a very good strategic position on the lake with a ton of resources and a beautiful natural harbor. And then so it became the center of military naval operations for the war's theater in the north. So on Sunday... July 19th of 1812, Captain Woosley of USS Juanita discovered from the masthead of his brig five enemy vessels sailing up to the harbor. These were the British vessels. It was HMS Royal George. She had 24 guns. HMS Seneca. She had 18. HMS Prince Regent. She had 22. HMS Earl of Morina, 20 guns. And HMS Simicol. She was the smallest with 10. Well, how, how many guns did uh, he have to work with? I feel it's safe to assume uh, a fair few less. All right, so she had 16 24-pound carronades. So nice big guns, but still outnumbered gun-wise, never mind ship-wise, by quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So the British captured a merchant ship carrying flour nearby and decided to send the men ashore with demands that the Americans surrender, the USS Juanita, and also the HMS Lord Nelson, which was a ship that the Americans captured, and then told them also that if a shot was fired at them, they would burn the village of Sackett's Harbor. So, of course, the first shots were fired by the British. I'm just trying to process that. It, don't shoot, or else we'll burn everything. Okay, okay, we're not shooting. Bang. We didn't shoot. Uh, we didn't say we wouldn't shoot. We just said we wouldn't burn. Yeah, but now they can free to shoot back. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So, yeah, they fired at the USS Juanita under the command of Commodore Chauncey, which then attempted to escape these British vessels. 
but was unable to, so they turned around and came back to port. So the British continued and dropped anchor. So back at the port, Juanita was moored with her broadside of nine guns pointed at the enemy. And then the others were taken quickly out and placed on the breastwork along the shoreline near where a 32-pound cannon intended for the boat, but it was too heavy and had been mounted on a pivot. So below this cannon, a protective mound of six feet had been constructed. So alarm guns were fired and messages were sent to call in the neighboring militias. Now, unfortunately, most of the militias did not arrive in time to render any assistance. But by the end of the day, about 3,000 militia had assembled while they did not engage. The British were lied to about the defenses of the harbor. They assumed there was nothing to be afraid of because of the ordinance and that the force at the time in the town was just the crew of Juanita and a regiment that was under Colonel Bellinger, which was just a volunteer company of artillery under Captain Camp and, you know, a small militia. So Captain Woosley left command of his brig to a lieutenant and took command on shore with a 32-pound gun. There was no shot in town larger than 24-pound cannonballs, but they used patches of carpet to be able to make them fit the 32-pound gun. (laughs) Necessity is the mother invention. Yeah, but by the time they figured all this out and were starting to do this, the enemy had arrived. And they were almost right in front of the battery. So the battle started. The first shot was fired from that 32-pound cannon and failed to hit any of the ships. Dang, damn it. Right after they saw that cannonball hit the water, they could hear laughter from that fleet. And then the British returned fire and continued firing for two hours. Most of the British fire was reported as very accurate. And the Americans returned fire throughout the bombardment. One of the broadsides from Juanita and the 32-pounder inflicted a lot of hits on and near the Royal Navy vessels. So closer to the end of the battle, the Royal George, which was the flagship, was maneuvering around to fire another broadside. A 24-pound shot struck her in the stern, which actually raked her entire length, which killed eight men and doing a lot of damage. She also had a lot of damage to her topmast and rigging. All the other warships were also damaged, but the extent is unknown of of how much damage there was. So after that last shot on the Royal George, the signal of for retreat was given. They were like, well, we're done. And the fleet left for Ontario very quickly. When the Americans saw this, the band struck up the national tune of the time, Yankee Doodle, and gave three cheers. Now on July 24th, General Jacob Brown said the success of the day was because of the gallant spirit of officers Woosley 
Bellinger, and Camp, and especially to the crew of the 32-pounder, which was William Vaugh. He claimed the honor of having fired the first hostile gun in the war. One of the men at this gun was named Julius Torrey. He was an African-American, but he was better known as Black Julius, and he was very, very popular in the camp. He served with remarkable courage. So since there was really no use of using small arms, since the British never actually landed troops, most of the troops were just sitting there watching. Just enjoying the fireworks? Just sitting there watching, enjoying the fireworks. So I imagine the British coming in on this. They they must have been feeling pretty high and mighty, outnumbering the American ship five to one. And then especially with that first shot, missing hilariously. But pretty quickly they realized they bit off a lot more than they could chew. And that this wouldn't just be a splendid little war to retake the colonies. I wouldn't say two hours is quick. Especially when you're in the thick of it. (laughs) Well, like a a wise man once said, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a cannonball. Yeah, the three D's of dodgeball or the five D... No, it was the five D's of dodgeball. I honestly... (laughs) Uh, even though I know the quote, I actually haven't seen the movie. Well, you're not missing much. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to actually end it here a little bit early. At the uh, end of the first battle. Because we have a lot more to go. And I don't want to get through halfway through this next one and have to make everybody wait a week before being able to hear the conclusion of the engagements on Lake Ontario. So that's what we're going to do next week. So any passing thoughts? Anything to say before we pull back into port? Well, I learned that carpet has another use than I knew of today. So uh going to have to keep a few rolls of that lying around if I ever need to stuff a cannon. That's that's good advice. That's good advice to take from this uh, this battle. Cannon carpet going to see if that business actually exists now. Because <laughs> you know somebody knows this anecdote. Yep. In Opelika, Alabama. Okay, well, they're not a sponsor, so we'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thank you for joining us. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so at U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. You can now tweet at us at USN History Pod. So, anything else before uh, I send you to go find a gig line? Uh, a giggle line? Uh, I, I thought we ran a out gig of line. No, no, I heard giggle line. I'll, I'll, I'll find some children laughing, I suppose. Be right back. Bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing 